Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Ilya Gelman. Ilya is the head of the New York office of 500 Tech, a leading Israeli consultancy with expertise in Angular and React. He is active speaking at and organizing conferences uh, and meetups around the world, including the React Next conference. Along with his colleague, Boris Dinkovich, Ilya is co-author of the LeanPub book, The Complete Redux Book, Everything You Need to Build Real Projects with Redux. As they say in the description of their book, it will teach you everything you need to use Redux to build complex and production-ready web applications. In this interview, we're going to talk about Ilya's professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk about his experience a little bit using LeanPub to self-publish. So thank you, Ilya, for being on the LeanPub podcast. Thank you for having me, Len. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you first became interested in software development and how you made your way to the New York office for 500 Tech. Um, so my story might be a bit different from other people's stories um, because initially I didn't want to become a programmer. Um, so my story begins at school when uh, uh, I, I had to select one of the subjects that I would uh, learn through my um, uh, latest grades. Um, this is how this worked in Israel. Um, so I chose computer sciences and I was really interested in it and I like I love to play with computers and I worked as um, um, assistant for uh, our network um, um, network administrator school and this is one of the subjects that, like I did best I, I think I got highest highest grades in that subject um, but when it came time to um, go to the army I received a proposal to go to uh, programming uh, forces like People uh, just go and for three years, for four years, they just write code in the army. And I said, well, I don't want to be a programmer. Um, that time I want to be a designer. And you know, after, just after a few years, I realized what a mis- huge mistake I made. Um, but yeah, but um, so it was three years in the army and um, I always like to design things and to build you know, new tools, new products. And um, I, I can't say that I'm like um, a gifted designer but sometimes I wanted to make something done and I had to find programmers um, and it was really hard to do because you no know, good programmers are really hard to find, especially to find programmers that would do things for free. And I decided that, well, that's a good time to learn some programming. So I decided just to learn Ruby on Rails on my own, just to, uh, you know, to be able to build my own ideas, to make them, to bring them to life. So I, uh, while I was in the army, I learned Ruby on Rails. Uh, build a couple of projects, and then uh, by the time it was, um, and then when when it was time to d- get discharged from the army, um, I had to decide what I'm going to do with my life. So by that time I was already married, so I need to needed to find a job, and I had a decision um, uh, between going to um, art school and like giving a, uh, getting a degree in arts or um, getting some. Uh, fast course on programming and find a job as a programmer. And, um, you know, I felt like kind of confident that I would succeed in that. So I tried to um, try to find any courses that would teach me some you know, Ruby on Rails. That's the thing that was familiar with at that time. And I found a company um, called 500 Tech, which organized a Ruby course. And they also promised to, to help with, uh, you know, with uh, finding a job after the course. So uh, I contacted them and I said, um, I'm just going to get discharged from IDF. I'm looking for a job, and I want to get your, um, want to take your course. And I was invited for an interview to see like what a, what a, what my level is. 
And um, Adam, one of the partners, interviewed me and he said, well, you know that you don't need a course. Uh, would you like to join us and you know, work with us? And, like, I was pretty amazed by that because like, uh, you know, uh, people like me where they have no, um, no understanding of how industry works or what's the level of people in the industry, it's really hard to understand and to estimate your skills. Uh, so I was like pretty amazed. And then um, after a few days, he gave me some assignments. Uh, I did them and he invited me to join 500 Tech as, uh, as a JavaScript programmer. Though uh, They just said, that, you know, you don't need Ruby course, but, you know, we like your Ruby code, but you were going to write JavaScript. Um, that's, a that's really, how it all started. That's a really interesting story. I've got a, a couple of questions related to that. But first, um, you actually... Um, when you mentioned um, joining the IDF and doing your service for three years, you reminded me of something I encountered years ago um, in uh, in Greece, actually, which was a lot of, I met a lot of young Israelis um, who were just about to start their military service. Um, and I was told that there, it was conventional for someone to go on a holiday before those years start. Is that something that was sort of, I just stumbled across and is not that normal or is that something that's actually quite normal no this is actually a pretty popular thing in israel um because many people when they get discharged they receive some amount of money from um, from the government and some people decide to go like for a couple of months until a couple of years of traveling all around the world just to see the world before they start their like uh, adult life you know before they go to university or because they before they get a job Okay, that's interesting because I, I, yeah, I was talking about like before you start your service that these were these were kids who were sort of sent on holiday by their parents to have some oh, fun really? before going. But I've actually I've actually met at least one person who did exactly what you just described um, quite a few years ago in Canada. That's um, that's really interesting. I didn't know that 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 was common to take some time afterwards to travel and do things. Yeah, so I haven't heard about people uh, going to holiday before the army, but after it's really common. Like every, uh, I think like every other person just goes to travel um, around the world just to see how it, I don't know, how it looks like, how it feels like to be outside of Israel. And so um, you did your, uh, you, you sort of taught yourself how to code um, as a sort of side project during those years. Yeah, that's correct. So I found um, there was pre- plenty of free material about Ruby on Rails, and like I was was always excited how easy it is to just educate yourself on programming uh, on the internet. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. It's one of the um, topics that often comes up uh, on this podcast because so many of the people that I interview are developers, and I find about half um, formally studied computer science and half didn't. But mm-hmm. that's not necessarily a good indicator of what they currently think the best path is for someone who might be thinking about starting out. And I was wondering um, what your advice would be, say, for someone who's, you know, smart and 18 uh, and maybe doesn't have a few years of military service ahead of them, but, you know, can decide what career path to go down at that moment. Um, do you do you feel that you missed out because you didn't do a computer science degree at a university? Oh. On the contrary, I feel actually that uh, not spending a lot of time doing the degree actually um, helped me concentrate on um, building actual skill set for the job I'm doing currently. But, you know, I know a lot of people who did a science degree and um, it kind of depends on on what kind of company you want to work for. Because some larger companies, um, you can't really or you have you're going to have really bad time getting to an interview without a science degree, a computer science degree. 
because some some companies just filter out all the people that don't have it. Um, but you know, a lot of really talented programmers I've met, a lot of them don't have any science degree. But I think it's a matter of luck on how to get a good mentors and um, get into a good company that will teach you and educate you on how to be a good programmer despite you not having a, a computer science degree. It, it could help, but you have to remember that it takes you like three to four years, and that time you might use for you know, for building your experience or portfolio. So it's like a trade-off. Yeah, that's a really that's a really um, interesting perspective. Um, I, I hear that from from quite a few people, um, and that you know just keep in mind that if you want to work for a big company, they might have some formal requirements. But you know, if you want to get into software development, it's not necessary to get computer science degree, especially because of all the great materials out there. Um, uh, and I know that um, actually you uh, got into uh, convening meetups and speaking at conferences and organizing conferences and things like that. And I was wondering, I mean, you talk about building your portfolio. That's actually, I imagine, a little bit part of that. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about how you got into that. I think it's something some people find a little bit intimidating to do, but I, from what I could tell online, it seemed to come, it appeared to come pretty naturally to you to be involved in that way yeah well for me it was um I, I was pretty lucky to work at a company that does so much around um front-end community in israel um and all around the world so when i came to company they were already having these uh, meetups for angular um react didn't exist yet uh, back then but you know they they ran a couple of meetups for angular meetups for startups and it was it was kind of natural to see all the people coming on stage you know talking giving the talks and uh, eventually, I started to help organize these things, and uh, you know, for, for, I started by attending meetups, right? So I didn't just jump right in. And um, when I was at the beginning of my path, it was really intimidating, really, to uh, think about. Well, one day maybe I could go on stage and present something, um, just as the other people doing. Because you know, when you are a um, junior developer, you don't really estimate your skills in the correct way. And then you see all these people coming on stage and um, um, uh, speaking about some advanced concepts. And sometimes you don't understand what they speak about because like, it's a completely different topic or completely, completely different domain. And you think, well, am I able to do that? And uh, that's one of the uh, reasons that my first tech talk wasn't actually technical. So it was like um, something more you know, broad. I chose a broad topic uh, to begin with because like, I didn't feel really confident um, to present something really advanced. Uh, but when you, do, when you do it a lot of times, you kind of start to understand the kind of people that speak at meetups. They aren't really different uh, from you. They all speak some complete, you know, complete weird things uh, on stage, and they make mistakes. And, uh, you know, we're all people. And um, junior developers can, somebody, can sometimes teach the audience much, much more um, actual um, useful things than senior developers that like maybe write less code or I don't know now managing teams instead of actually being hands-on on the projects. Yeah, that's a really interesting observation. Um, uh, I saw. Um, speaking of useful things, I saw an interesting um, distinction that you made in a presentation called "The Productive Developer," where you talk about how being productive does not necessarily equal being good. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about that idea. Yeah, I think that was my first presentation. Uh, like it wasn't technical, and uh, I think what what I meant what I meant by this point is um, 
my whole talk was about getting productive as a developer. So all people, um, all developers all, uh, were speaking about performance of their tools, so how this framework com is fast compared to the, another framework, how these you know, software runs faster, um, how do we write faster algorithms. But no one actually talks about you know, self-productivity and how you as developer produce um, results faster and um, you, like, you don't spend much time around, you, know, um, you don't spend much time uh, on using the tools, you spend time on actually creating stuff. And um, so my, my whole talk was about, you know, how do you get more productive? How do you produce more content um, on the, in the same period of time? Uh, so it was the disclaimer that, you know, the amount of, of work or the amount of lines of code that you produce over an hour doesn't mean you're going to produce uh, really good lines of code. So it's important to remember that before you start uh, jumping and, and you know, running and writing some lines of code right away, you have to sometimes stop a bit and think before you write your code. Um, so you might be really productive in you know, using all the shortcuts and um, being able to produce a lot of, a lot of code. So for example, you could implement a feature in a week instead of a month, but the, this feature that you implemented in a week might be really hard to extend and maintain and um, you know, rewrite, refactor um, in a few months from today. So it's like being productive, productive doesn't mean uh, being a good developer. So that's a good distinction to make. Yeah, that is really good. It um, reminded me of someone I was talking with recently um, who uh, tries to use a practice of um, uh, deleting code, like deleting everything that they've done after they've solved the problem. Because once you've solved the problem, uh, you know better than you did when you started writing that batch of code uh, where you need to end up. And it can sometimes be better to actually throw out all your work and start over when you know where you're going to get to rather than be stuck with all your mistakes and false paths uh, that you had before you knew the destination. Um, uh, in another presentation, um, you talk about the banana gorilla problem. Um, this is a concept from program, the programming world that not everybody might be familiar with, and it's a colorful one. And I was wondering if you could talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that. Uh, sure. I think that was one of, my, um, one of the first uh, presentations as well, as when I spoke about composition versus inheritance. So there's two patterns that um, people that learn computer science, they are familiar with usually, and also people working with um, object-oriented languages. They usually know the inheritance pattern very well. And people working with functional styling uh, programming, they know the composition uh, very well. And sometimes these people um, don't know both concepts. So I was explaining about um, comp um, composition is when you have, uh, for example, say a class, and it, it could be composed um, from some other classes. Like, for example, could um, borrow some methods from different modules and then compose one, um, like one object or one uh, entity. With, uh, versus inheritance, when your classes have to be children or parents of other classes, or how to call them, superclasses or subclasses. And um, um, so specifically about the banana gorilla problem is when um, one class that you import, it has so many methods um, inherited from um, a lot of superclasses that you didn't intend to import. Like, for example, um, if you create um, a vehicle, Right, it's really simple. But you want to make now um, a specific type of vehicle. Like for example, out of car, you want to create a Mercedes. 
and this Mercedes can drive, it can be uh, hung, it can uh, break, um, and also you can create, I know, an airship. Like, so you have an airborne vehicle and you have a plane. So this plane can take off, it can land, it can fly, it, it could have a jet engine. But what if you want to create a combined version of these two? What if you can create a Mercedes that can also fly? How do you do it? You can't really inherit from two classes, like in some languages you could, but um, and what if these uh, flying Mercedes should only implement only the subset of the methods on these two uh, superclasses? Um, how do you do that? So sometimes you don't have the, enough time to recreate the taxonomy or refactor all of your structure of the model. Um, and what you end up with is flying Mercedes that despite you didn't want him to have um, a jet engine, you have it just because it inherited from airborne vehicle. So that's kind of problem when you only want a banana, but what you actually get is gorilla holding a banana and the whole jungle comes with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that image. Um, uh, your book is about something called Redux. And I was wondering if you could talk, um, about what that is and, uh, why it, it merited, um, a book being written about it. Um, all well, Redux is, um, if it, if you speak about it in a plain words, it's uh, how to describe it, a predictable JavaScript state container, right? But when you put it that way, a lot of people don't really understand what does it mean. What does it mean predictable? What does it mean state container? So in, in a few words, um, Redux is basically three things. It means that you have a global state of your application when you put all your data and all of your UI state, how it looks, how it works. Uh, and this global state can only be changed by instructions that you put from outside. Uh, in Redux, those instructions called actions, for example, for instance. So you say, um, okay, I have a button, and now when I click, this button should turn red. So the state now changes. Um, and this way of organizing your state in one object and telling um, how to change the state by instructions, this is basically what Redux is. Uh, and by predictable, it means that um, every time you, you send an instruction to this um, Redux store, you create a new store. So you can save the old one uh, in history, and you can you know, traverse back and forth and see how the, change, uh, how the state changed. And because you write it in the declarative way, so instead of writing that store dot change something, you just describe how store should change in, um, in response to the instructions or to these actions, uh, this means that you can always understand and uh, realize how your store or how your state would, would look like after every single action. It is what makes it predictable. Um, and you know, this small library, it's, I think it's a couple hundreds of lines of code. You can over it. I can go over it in a half an hour. And this simplicity, I think it's the, the most powerful concept about this library. And this is why it's so popular. So it's so small, but it solves really, really hard problem in, creating complex UIs. And it, um, I believe it came about accidentally. Yeah, so the fun, funny story about Redux that um, its creators, Dan Abramov and Andrew Clark, um, really awesome guys, but they didn't intend to um, create a replacement for you know, this flux button that was presented initially by Facebook. They just want, um, like uh, Dan wanted to present um, a new idea at ReactCon and he kind of just proposed the idea, and then he sat and figured out, well, how am I doing this? So his proposal was, um, how to put it? His proposal was, um, 
time traveling in React applications. And by that time, no one did time traveling. So we kind of sat down and um, thought how this might work. And uh, eventually this became, after a few iterations, of course, this became like a very popular library that everyone uses that or every other person uses in his React projects. And this is, uh, you know, just to mention um, what we talked about previously about uh, a lot of people being intimidated to speak at meetups or conferences. Um, no, I, I've done this for, for some time, and um, I can tell a small secret to all these people that are being intimidated and uh, um, want to speak but don't really know um, how, how to approach this. A lot of people that sending um, proposals to conferences and to meetups, they have no idea how they are going to present something that we are, um, they are proposing to speak about. So like an example of Dan, he just sent an idea, and then he just figured out how to do it. I do it sometimes as well. So I, sometimes I propose um, uh, an idea that interests me, but I don't really know or completely understand. And then if it gets accepted, I just spend some time on learning it and building things around it and just trying to understand it and find a way to explain it in the best way I can. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks very much for that that tip and that, that explanation. That's really good. Um, I was wondering, I wanted to ask um, uh, what brought you and your colleague, uh, Boris, uh, who I believe is the CEO of 500 Tech and founder, um, what, what brought you to decide to write a book, which is a pretty big undertaking? Um, well, you know, there are some, there are a few reasons. Um, first and obvious reason, well, I can speak, I can speak for myself, but, uh, you know, first of all, we all like to share knowledge. So we had um, a lot of experience with sharing the knowledge with other people. We had like free workshops and we organized meetups and um, you know, we write blog posts and we help people uh, on the internet. And writing a book is just one of the ways to help all of our clients and all the other people which come to us with the same questions, uh, like how do you implement server um, communication? How do you implement testing? How do you, you know, structure your application? So this is one of the ways to just you know, answer all of the questions at once. So just uh, give them the book and say, read it, and you'll get the answer. Um, and there's also a reason uh, that, you know, writing a book is a good thing to put in your resume. So um, when you tell people that, oh, I also write a book on Redux, they kind of look at you uh, from different perspective. Um, but really, it's not that big of a deal. Like er anyone can write a book. You just need enough time and, uh, you know, investigate the topic um, very deeply. Um, yeah, putting it on resume is one of the um, reasons um, and also at that time, there was a lot of free content on the internet on how to use Redux and how to use Redux with React. And most of these, um, most of these tutorials and guides, they were really basic. So they explained some basic stuff. Like for example, for server communication, um, everyone just took the easiest thing to explain, like the Redux Punk library, right? So just know if you have asynchronous actions, and uh, and I'm I'm getting a bit technical here, but. Um, there is a way to, there's, there are multiple ways to do server communication with Redux. And one of the ways could, uh, could be done through asynchronous actions. When you dispatch an action, which actually goes to server, fetches data, and does um, different things. And while this is so easy to explain, you know, when you see it in real-world applications, uh, it's kind of, you know, kind of, when you're using it, you're shooting yourself in the leg. Because testing these asynchronous actions is a lot of pain. Um, you know, rewriting it, refactoring it, changing uh, the um, underlying infrastructure of server calls. It's really hard when you have all this multiple asynchronous sections. So what we uh, came up with 
uh, no, a lot of other small, smart people came up with this is actually using the concept of middleware to, um, for server communication. And this concept is so hard to explain. Like, for example, if you look at uh, the mid middleware functions at Redux and how they look like, you, you can't really understand how you start to explain it because it's a function that returns a function, function that returns a function that returns another function. Um, and this concept is really hard to grasp, uh, let alone to explain it. So a lot of tutorials online, they just don't do it. They um, concentrate on very, um, um, you know, very low level introduction to Redux and how to work with React. So um, just thought that, you know, uh, writing an actual book from our real world experience, and we've done a lot of like dozens of, um, of projects for clients using Redux and not using Redux. Uh, you know, we started work with React even before Redux came to exist. So we've seen it all, and uh, we wanted to share it with the world like for some more advanced concepts, something that you would maybe notice along the way, like a few months after you started building your application. But then it would be too late you know, to, um, to rewrite everything. For, um, for any uh, current authors or uh, budding uh, authors out there, um, you uh, managed to reach about 13,000 new readers just in the last couple of weeks, I think. And that's something a lot of people would like to be able to do. And I was wondering if you could explain if you and Boris did anything special around that promotion um, besides making the book free, which is always the minimum price of the book free, which is always, you know, an attractive thing to people. But that is, that is a striking amount of people to reach. Um, yeah, no, first of all, we were surprised by ourselves because we never expected such an outreach. Um, but, you know, the answer is quite simple. We didn't do much to promote it. Uh, it's all the power of Twitter and uh, famous people retweeting our tweets. So we, we were lucky enough that Dan Abramov and Andrew, they're really nice people. And uh, we, when we made this book free, it first of all, it certainly helps to make this book free. Um, and uh, when they just retweeted it and then Twitter got crazy and people started retweeting it uh, and showing to their friends because, no, it feels like a uh, book is really a desired topic. Like Redux, everyone uses Redux, and there aren't a lot of um, good quality, or I hope good quality, uh, materials on how to work real-world real, real world applications Redux. So it's kind of sold itself. So people just uh, were uh, willing to retweet it and show it to their friends. Uh, someone posted it on some, some blog sites, and uh, it kind of just promoted them, promoted itself. But uh, maybe it's interesting to mention that you know when we make this book free, we actually made more money than selling it um, for for a recent amount of money. So a lot of people, uh, they see the book as free and they understand the value and they just pay money uh, even though they don't have to, and which is really you know really exciting and empowering to understand that there are a lot of people that really value your work and not just downloading it and forgetting about it. Yeah, that's um, that's just for those listening uh, who might not know. Um, when you buy a Lean Pub book, there's a minimum price and a and a suggested price that are set by the author, or authors, and so you can actually set a minimum price of free, and a suggested price of you know nine ninety nine or whatever price you want, um, and it is quite common um, for authors with books that have a minimum price of free on Lean Pub to actually make. Uh, quite a bit of money sometimes um, from those books. Um, and yeah, there are, it, it's often, uh, often authors when they discover this often feel very empowered by it. Um, but so do, so do readers. Um, they like, they like being presented with a choice once they figure out what's going on. And they often do choose to pay um, for an author's work when they don't have to. 
Uh, it's been one of the more exciting things that we've discovered at Lean Pub over the years. Um, start, moving on to one of my last questions, um, I wanted to ask you why you chose Lean Pub as the platform for your book. Um, this is an interesting question because in the beginning we didn't think um, about self-publishing at all. So what we thought about um, going to you know, a well-known publisher and working with them um, because now we didn't care about money. We cared, we cared more about exposure and uh, people to get to know us that we wrote this book and uh, um, maybe potentially they could reach out to us um, asking for help for you know, getting a project or something else. So we tried to reach out to a few, um, to a few publishers and um, very quickly we realized that this is not the best way to go because all these publishers, they, they do a tremendous amount of work. Obviously, if you don't know publishing a book, it's not just writing a text and, you know, putting up a PDF and printing it or, um, you know, selling it online. There's a lot of um, reviews going on, technical reviews. You have to show it to different people to see that you didn't make any stupid mistakes. Um, you have to proofread it. Like, as you can tell, English is not our like strongest language out of three. So I, I originally born in Russia and lived for my whole life in Israel and also I speak English. So, you know, uh, we had a lot of grammar mistakes and phrasing mistakes and you also have to design a book and you have to somehow marketing so once you wrote the book how do you actually you know get it to market how do you uh, tell people about it how do you make it popular and publisher does a lot of these things but there are some problems so first of all when you go with a publisher you don't really own your book so uh, you work on a really tight schedule um, you receive some amount of money but once um, the book is published you can't never decide to make it free for a week. You can't uh, set a price. You can't really, you know, get some copies to give it to your friends. So you receive some amount of copies and then you have to buy your own books. And the most intimidating part is that um, publisher usually uh, put um, a small um, point in contract that you have to uh, update your book on demand when like, when new version of um, of a library comes out, you have to actually sit and write new, a new chapter or update the whole book on their own schedule. And if you don't do that, then maybe they might bring a different co-author and stuff like that. So kind of not owning the, owning the book. And um, um, like we didn't want to, um, how does it, forgot the word, let's see. Uh, you didn't want uh, to relinquish the rights? No, not relinquish the rights. We didn't want to like, um, uh, to tell them that we are going to work whenever they want us to, to work uh, on it. So um, I forget what I, I tried to rephrase it. Um, so we, um, we didn't really want to give away our rights to the book. We wanted to have some freedom, you know, making it free from time to time. Or, you know, we're doing some workshops and uh, speaking in conferences. So it's really good for us to say, like, okay, so everyone who attends our workshops get a free book. And uh, everyone who was in this, um, in this uh, talk get a free book. So it's like this freedom was really important to us. And also we didn't want to sign for, you know, um, periodical updates when like every time the library gets updated and by the time you wrote a book, it took us over a year and Redux released like 21 or 22 versions of it. And every time if we had to rewrite the book on the publisher schedule, we just, uh, we couldn't make it. Um, so we tried to find the different alternatives and I can't remember how I discovered LeanPub. Maybe some friend told me about it. Um, but we, we say that, okay, we're going to try just write it the simplest way, put it on LeanPub, see how it goes. You know, anytime we could uh, go with the publisher. So uh, the part that I like most about LeanPub, they just give you complete freedom. 
right? You, if you want to, like after your boot gets um, gets promoted, you can take this manuscript and send it to like O'Reilly or any other big publisher, and you know, and take it off Leanpub, and they won't get offended. Um, so it's like this freedom is really uh, in for, um, like empowering us to just go and do the actual writing and um, you know worry about all the other things later. So the only thing we did is you know, designing um, designing the cover and uh, hiring a copy editor, Rachel Head, which is like uh, helped us a lot with uh, um, you know fixing our grammar, fixing our English. And Leanpub did all the rest. Like so you just we uploaded the the manuscript and we got the book that we can sell and print. Um, so it was pretty amazing, and um, we are really happy that we we went the uh, Leanpub way and not going and we don't ended up like uh, with a really draconic contract with a publisher. And um, is uh, thanks for that answer and for the kind words about Leanpub. We appreciate that, and it's always nice to hear that you know we we built Leanpub sort of for certain kinds of, I mean, it can be used for lots of, in lots of different ways, but like what you're describing is very particularly the kind of need that we wanted to meet. Um, is, I'm just curious if corresponding with readers is something that you were planning on doing, or you have been doing, you know, getting feedback from readers and then uh, changing the book based on that, that feedback. Or well, just- we're right. We were actually really surprised about how people reacted to our book. So um, people were so kind. They were sending our these reports. So um, they asked, okay, how can I help you with the book? So I found these um, chapters that are missing. Like, I, I just misunderstood them. And uh, I feel that there is a problem with your code. And uh, they say that this phrasing was not, not good enough. Uh, and they were really like supportive. They said, we love your book. And here's a small problem we found. Can you please fix that? And we're like really happy to receive this feedback um, because I don't know we could proofread it for for days and for months, but when actual actual readers um, are reaching out to you and telling you that uh, you know we really love the book and this is a small small note typo I noticed or small concept that you could have explained better, um, it's like it's really good. It's really good. And how did how did people reach out to you? Did you give did you give out an email address in the introduction to the book, or do they reach out on Twitter? Um, some of them reached on Twitter. Some of them wrote uh, an email. I think some of them used this feature, uh, contact the author on LeanPub. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a bummer that like we don't have this one you know issue tracker where everyone can just submit their issue in the book and we can just go over it and you know prioritize them. So uh, getting feedback from multiple channels is kind of overwhelming sometimes. Uh, so we have to to keep our own um, you know list of things to to fix in the book. Um, but yeah, it was various channels, and people reached out from Twitter, from LeanPub, from email. Yeah, it's interesting. I've never quite thought about this before. I mean, we've we've had uh, people talk about you know the issue of you know tracking issues and things like that, and things that are reported. Um, at the same time as it would be really useful to provide something that people could just go to on LeanPub, I've never quite thought before, but you also might lose a little bit of the human side of the interaction, mm-hmm. um, which can make authors feel better about what they're doing and can make readers feel really good. I mean, when they hear back, when they get a, a message from an author, and especially if they see the change that they suggested incorporated into the book, uh, it just makes them feel good. Um, uh, my last question is um, if there were any feature we could build for you, if you could ask us for anything, 
Uh, oh yes, so many. <laughs> okay, pick, pick pick maybe one or two. <laughs> um, okay, so I, I think that uh, one of the um, most challenging things were to actually write co-author the book because we we tried to find any software or any um, online application to be able to write Markdown uh, together and then set it to to a copy editor or maybe to a reviewer and to leave comments on that. Um, and we haven't found any better way than just using Google Docs. So what we did, we wrote Google Docs and then set it to a, to a copy editor and she fixed some um, grammar and added some comments and asked some questions. And then we you know, checked it back and changed stuff and did a couple of more iterations uh, every time. And then we had to convert it to Markdown and then we um, you know, um, just added it to our repository uh, to Git and send it to LeanPub. And when we had any, I don't know, any typos and we wanted to make any changes, it was really hard to do because, you know, writing Markdown um, that way is really hard. So once it's in the repository and we want to change it, we have to take all the content back to Google Docs, you know, edit it, send it to our copy editor again, and then doing the whole process um, all over again. So if you could write an editor when multiple authors can, you know, kind of Google Doc style, edit it live and add some comments and um, anyway, make suggestions and then other people to collaborate on it. That would be really great. And that automatic, automatically export it uh, to LeanPub format because all this Google Docs markdown conversion was really hard for us to do. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for um, explaining that, that situation. Um, collaborating around writing documents is in itself a tricky thing. Um, yeah. There have been entire startups devoted to that, um, and it's definitely something that we would like to be able to help authors with more. And you know, especially the experience you're describing, where you're also dealing with a copy editor, um, uh, really presents some interesting challenges. But it's definitely something we'd like to find solutions for. Um, well, uh, thanks very much, uh, Ilya, for taking the time to do this. Uh, we really appreciate it, and I want to say congratulations again on reaching so many readers with your um, recent promotion. Um, and yeah, thanks for uh, being a LeanPub author. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for providing such a great uh, platform for uh, all the authors. <laughs>